Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 104, verses 1 to 4 and 31 to 35. Hear God's word to us. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle. For those of you who are newer, I'm the campus pastor here. And recently I came across a brilliant religious work of art titled Love. Or Food, a Love Story. That's a bit misleading, isn't it? Food, a Love Story. And uh, seriously, though, it was quite religious. Um, Jim Gaffigan, I don't know if you're familiar with this comedian, but this is one of his most recent books. And he takes his words and gloriously constructs a temple to french fries, fry bread, and ice cream. And even at the end of the book, that comes with a benediction. And I'm right there with him, worshiping. (laughs) Because who doesn't love food? Anyone in here not love food? Yeah, I didn't think so. You know, and here in Casey's foodie culture especially, right? We've tasted something amazing. And then I dare you not to take a picture and Instagram that beast or to tell a friend about that new dive you found. Then there comes the point of watching the Royals or chanting for Sporting KC or breaking cheering records over at Chiefs Kingdom, no less. I dare you to try to sit on your hands and keep your mouth shut for a matter of seconds. You can't do it. Then there's the whole thing of seeing a beautiful work of art or seeing a brilliant movie, taking a long walk on the beach that moves you or being in the waves of a passionate relationship or just happen to be on the iPhone 6S waiting list. You can't help but tell people about it. And if you're on that list, tell me. Okay, so here's the deal. Even me, as a, as a father of two kids, I annoy people all the time, complete strangers, with pictures of how my daughter loves to pick her nose or how my son sleeps with his mouth open. And I'm kind of sorry about it, but I'm really not. You just got to deal with it, right? What's going on? We can't help ourselves. We can't help but worship. We experience something great, and it beckons us to praise. And what we love most, we praise most. What we love most, we praise most. Now, if you know anything about Christianity or you know anything about the Bible, then instantly you should start to feel some sort of tension because if there's anyone that we should praise above all, it's God. 
Even the psalmist starts his prayer, Psalm 104, with bless the Lord, O my soul. He's to be our delight. He's the one we're supposed to love most and so praise most. But if that's true, we almost also instantaneously feel a great fissure in our lives because for some reason, the psalmist has to tell himself to praise God. Why doesn't he just get on with it? And this particular claim, hey, soul, bless the Lord, shows up pretty frequently throughout the psalms. We also feel this fracture when you look at the difference in energy of this church, you know, and this church or any church really across the metro or why it is that those who have kids are excited about their new eye device can't keep their mouths shut and yet would rather oftentimes not have their coworkers know or the friends at happy hour know that they're followers of Jesus. We've all got praise problems, right? And, and I want you to hear, mine happen to be coated in mayonnaise and more sloth than grease, but we've all got them. And I don't want you to feel like I'm pointing the finger at anybody because I'm pointing the finger right back at myself. Every single one of us in here this morning, every single one of us, we're going to experience something great and we're going to turn that greatness into praise towards someone or something. And what we love most, we praise most. Now, in one sense, this is the most stereotypical sermon on prayer ever <laughs> because when we've been talking about prayer over the past couple of weeks and using the Psalms as our guide, but as we've, as we've been perusing the toolbox of prayer, praise is the one we most commonly grab, or at least we know we should, and by the time it's in our hands, we have no idea what to do with it. So where do we go from here? Let's begin where the psalmist begins. In Psalm 104, with bless the Lord, O my soul, and wrestle through the question, why is praising God so hard? Why is praising God so hard? Now, there are a few reasons, and I just want to walk through a, a few of them this morning. For one, all of these calls to praise God that we find in the Psalms, that our prayers, mind you, God inspired himself, um, can make God seem a bit self-centered a little more Floyd Mayweather or Donald Trump than anything like the loving, creative God that we find across the narrative of Scripture. And Daniel Dennett, a prolific writer for the New Atheist Movement, takes this exact claim and says that the God of the Scriptures is more an egocentric fabrication of a bygone age than any true God. Listen to what he writes in his book, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. Part of what makes Jehovah such a fascinating participant in stories of the Old Testament is his king-like jealousy and pride and his great appetite for praise and sacrifices. But we've moved beyond this, God, haven't we? And this is anything but a trivial pushback, especially if you're here this morning and you're not yet ready to call yourself a Christian. And right alongside of Dennett, this is one of the key reasons you wrestle through the plausibility of Christianity. Well, I want you to know you're not alone. People have wrestled through this question actually for millennia. And someone I want to highlight in particular who wrestled through this question of praise decades before Dennett was an Oxford professor by the name of C.S. Lewis who came to faith later in his life. And one of his particular books, Reflections on the Psalms, he has a brilliant insight that any thoughtful reader shouldn't bypass when we're discussing the topic of praise. Listen to what he writes. The most obvious fact about praise 
whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. And this is what I want to focus on. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is appointed consummation. It is its appointed consummation. And then Lewis, he goes on to illustrate how lovers can't help but dote each other's praises, not out of compliment, but because the delight in one another is not complete until they've expressed it verbally. Praise is more than expression. The act of praise is a new level in enjoyment. And when we come to understand this, and we come with the lens of understanding a loving God, it would be unloving for him not to call us to praise himself because that would be keeping a key component of enjoyment from us in our relationship with him. Do you see? Do you see? Praise, it's more than just an expression, but it's a new level of delight. And God wants us to enjoy every facet of our relationship with him. Now, this at first, only raises another reason why it's so difficult to praise God. And that's because I just love other stuff more. (laughs) I love other stuff more. What we love most, we praise most. And almost every one of our problems, almost, are praise problems. When you look at much of the heartache, the pain, the unhappiness we have in in our lives, it's not that we love the wrong things. Many of you love the right things. Many of us, myself, love the right things but we've loved them in the wrong order. For example, is it a good thing to want a successful career? Of course it is. But if that's your ultimate love, if that's the thing you want above everything else, it'll never bring you happiness. Think about this. In one sense, the obvious, this is the more obvious one, if you never attain the level of success that you've longed for, you're gonna feel like the core component of who you are is missing and you'll never lead a happy life. On the flip side, if you do reach the level of success you've always wanted, those who have reached that level will proclaim this consistently. There is not enough achievement that can sustain our happiness. If you think you've become as successful as you want, you'll find that your happiness cannot stand the test of time. And the truth echoes whether it be in a potential marriage, potential children, or a goal GPA. And what's so fascinating about praying the praises of the Psalms is that we not only find a vocabulary that's much more rich for praising God, but in praying these praises, we actually have our loves reordered, appropriately so, to live the blessed life, is what the psalmist is pointing us towards. Now, there's one more reason why it's hard to praise God, okay? Not only do we wrestle with how God presents himself and what we're wrestling through within ourselves. But one of the more common ones, at least in my own life, is I'm just not paying attention anymore. I'm not impressed with God and his world. I've forgotten what it means to sit in wonder or to get lost in awe. And artists are really helpful for us in this particular capacity. And they describe this as visual lethargy. It's where you see something so regularly that you stop paying attention to it. And what artists will do is they'll bring a unique composition or show us in a slant something that we've seen a million times but in a unique point of view that captures our attention afresh. 
and we see something that we've been seeing, but now we really see it. In our culture, we're in a bit of a crisis. We're kind of in an era of hurry and an era of what some have called a state of continuous partial attention. This is where you're texting your coworker while listening to NPR in the background, while driving and telling your date about the noises your loft neighbor was making till 2 a.m. You've got all of these components that are playing into one another and overlapping each other, and you feel like it's impossible to slow down. But when we do, and this happened to me this past week, I was sitting on my front porch, and a cool September breeze came apart. You know, this, is, this past week, we're finally get a taste of fall, right? And this cool September breeze comes through the porch, and I see the trees dancing to what sounds like my daughter giggling as she's playing with bubbles. What an amazing world we live in if we just stop and take notice. And so Psalm 104 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. And that's usually the sum total of my praise, <laughs> you know, with maybe a couple extra gospel words in there, right, if we're going to throw those in there. You know, God, thank you for today. Speaking of today, I kind of got this thing going on, but not with our psalmist. He's just getting warmed up. This, you are so great, God, is like the first note in a whole symphony of praise. So how can that be true of us? How can praising God become natural rather than nominal in our everyday lives? Well, it takes a particular sort of outward-facing attentiveness to God's world, God's word, and God's presence. God's word, God's world, and God's presence. So let's listen and learn from this master prayer, and I'm going to read to you and for us all of Psalm 104, and it's long, okay? So it's going to take some disciplined imagination to stick with this. Um, oftentimes when we get through four verses, I say amen. But we're going to get through all of 35. And I want you to also notice the senses that the psalmist is engaging as he's walking through this psalm and praising God. Also notice some of the vocations that God's engaged in. Sometimes God is described as an engineer, an architect, an arborist, to name a few. So let's listen and praise God. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's on page number 502. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the, wing, wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flame of fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth 
and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play with. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, They are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his own works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him. For I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Such amazing detail and imagination. It's almost as if he's looking at a different world. (laughs) Because behind every nook and cranny, underneath every rock and over every bush, he sees God's sustaining work. Thomas Friedman The New York Times columnist who made the phrase continuous partial attention go viral. He describes in this same article of going on a Peruvian entrepreneurial journey through the jungle. And listen to how he describes his guide. He writes, What struck me about our Peruvian rainforest guide, Gilbert, which someone told me after the service was probably Gerberto or something along those lines, though was that he carried no devices and did not suffer from continuous partial attention. Just the opposite. He heard every chirp, whistle, howl, or crackle in the rainforest and would stop us in our tracks and immediately identify what bird, insect, or animal it was. He also had incredible vision and never missed a spider's web or a butterfly or a toucan or a column of marching termites. He was totally disconnected from the web but totally in touch with the incredible web of life around him. That's our psalmist. He's attentive. He's aware to God's world and what God's doing in the midst of his people. And so I want us to learn to see as the psalmist sees. I want us to learn to praise as the psalmist prays. And to do that, I'm going to walk us through, if you've got your Bibles with you, just a couple observations of what the psalmist does here as he begins to describe God's good work. In verses 2 through 6, The psalmist describes God as a designer, an architect, an engineer, a construction worker. He lays out the heavens. He's putting up beams. He's laying a foundation. In verses 8 through 14, God's the one who designs the landscape. He plants a garden. He puts in the irrigation systems. 
in verses 14 through 15. He's doing the good work of a baker, of a sommelier. I can never say that word right. Um, the guy who knows champagnes and wines and things. So the sommelier. Um, and also a beautician. He's baking bread. He's cultivating good wine. He's crafting oils for the skin of those who live in a dry climate. You get verses 16 through 18. God's an arborist. He's a birder and a zoologist. He's caring for the cedars as well as the animals that inhabit them and the environments that surround them. In verses 20 or 19 through 23, God does the work of an astronomer as well as doing the work of a lighting technician because the, the show must go on, whether for the animals or for the humans. In verses 24 through 26, he's a marine biologist. Or even Leviathan. Leviathan, that's not something we throw around all too often anymore these days, but it was an, a, a sea dragon of sorts. Many have compared them to the dinosaurs. But in ancient Near Eastern mindset, it was a symbol of chaos. And how does God engage Leviathan? By putting him in a special cage away from everyone else? No, among the ships. And God plays with it as if he's playing fetch with Fido in the backyard. This symbol of chaos is even under God's divine rule and he enjoys his good world. And then you get to verses 27 through 20, 29 and 30. And God's the boss. He's the one who divvies out the resources for this global enterprise. He's the master planner on knows when projects start and when they end and the strategy that it takes to get them through. Isn't that amazing? The psalmist is enamored with who God is. And yet we get amazed with the new app, although that's a good thing. Or we get amazed, this is maybe just me, when Wendy's brings out this burger that has four towering pieces of beef and my stomach starts growling because I think that's amazing but terrible for me and my wife kills me for that. But none compares to what God has created and ordained and sustained in his good world. Do you want to know how praising God can be natural rather than nominal in your everyday life? It has to first start with being attentive to God's world and praising him for it. Being attentive to God's world and praising him for it. And I'm, I'm not saying you need to now go find a park and take a good long walk. That can be great. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm a first eyewitness account here of saying how beautiful the stars can be at 1 a.m. in a New Mexican desert. It, it throws you back. I'm a firsthand account of a witness of one who says that a, a sunset on a cloudless beach is gorgeous and leaves you with awe. I'm a firsthand account of someone who climbs through the smoky mountains and as the, the fog continues to dissipate as you go up and down, every new hill is a new awe. And yet, you can also begin to pay attention to God's world and praise Him in His creation by subscribing to National Geographic Instagram. <laughs> you know, okay, and they didn't, you know, it feels like that's a weird commercial. But here's the deal. You go there and you, you can scan through and slowly take one picture at a time as urbanites here and notice the contours and not only celebrate God's good world, but celebrate the gifts he has given the photographer who captured it, the contours, the composition, and learn to celebrate what God has done around us. You see, only when you can slow down and enjoy God's good world will you ever be able to let every pleasure end with, with uh, praise. Let every pleasure end with praise. When you get lost in a beautiful work of art by Aaron that we have here in our space, don't just get amazed at the art, but turn that into praise. 
thanking God that he's created human beings in his likeness to now be co-creators and to now express this artistic beauty. When you taste a ripe banana and its complex sugars hit your tongue and you go crazy with flavor, praise God who not only gave us food but gave us food to delight in. That's good. And it's when we let every pleasure end with praise, we step into a new level of delight a new realm of enjoyment that God is inviting us into. Not just an expression of praise to compliment the creator, but to actually engage a greater depth of delight. But the real question is, who do we focus this praise towards? There are very many intelligent people who do not believe in God, but yet they experience something greater than themselves in the world around them, and they seek to praise someone. Some of the common titles are Mother Nature, or oftentimes chance, not so for the psalmist. He's very clear who only is the rightful owner of this praise, who has the copyright on creation, that any other copyright infringement needs to be brought to court. (laughs) It's God, the creator of the universe. You see, each one of us, we see the world through a lens. It's a cultural lens. Some have called it a world view. And our senses, our five senses, can only take us so far. Science guides us into what's observable, repeatable, measurable, and so on. But there are certain bounds, there are certain gaps from perception to interpretation that we take our cultural lens and we build the bridge. For the psalmist, Scripture is that lens. Scripture is that bridge. And how he interprets what he sees, its origination and its its sustenance. And so, I want us to do a little something here. Every good scholar and thoughtful scholar who's wrestled with Psalm 104 notices the consistent themes of the Genesis account here. It's as if the psalmist is reading Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and mulling over and over and over and now looking at his world and he begins to pin his praise. And so I want us to learn to see this simultaneously with him. The psalmist, his meditations... Over Genesis 1, we see in day 1 is the separation of darkness and light. And in Psalm 104, verses 1 through 4, we see the elements of the world are being divvied out. Water, light, and air. In the Genesis Genesis account on days 2 and 3, water, air are separated as well as water and land. And what do we see in Psalm 104, verses 8 through 14? God is pictured as defining the landscape making sure that the waters have their boundaries, the mountains have their boundaries, the valleys have their boundaries. In Genesis 1 on day 4, the seasons are organized. And in Psalm 104, verses 19 through 23, the rhythms of the seasons and the days orchestrate the work of both animals and human beings. On days 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 1, there is the creation of animals and human beings. And in Psalms 104, verses 27 through 30, We see how God is the one who gives life to everything that walks the earth. He's following these overarching chunks and he's meditating and it's become the interpretive framework and how he now praises God when he experiences God's good world. Do you know how praising God can become natural rather than nominal in your everyday life? Be attentive to God's word and praise him with it. Yes, be attentive to God's world and praise him for it, but be attentive to God's word and praise him with it. The further we dive into the depths of scripture and we let scripture dive into the depths of us, 
the more we'll come to see the world around us and know how to better engage and so respond in praise to the world that God has so given us. You know, one person to learn this kind of attentiveness to Scripture is the author Annie Dillard. Theologian Eugene Peterson says this glowing glowing, uh, statement over here. He says, She has assimilated Scripture so thoroughly and is so saturated with its cadences and its images that it's simply at hand unbidden as context and metaphor for whatever she happens to be writing about. She does not, though, use Scripture to prove or document. It's not a truth she used, but one she lives. Her knowledge of Scripture is stored in her right brain rather than her left, nourishment for the praying imagination rather than fuel for apologetic argument. She seldom quotes Scripture. She eludes constantly. There is scarcely a page that does not contain one or several illusions, but with such nonchalance, not letting her left hand know what her right hand is doing, that someone without a familiarity with Scripture might never notice the biblical precept and story. Imagine, your praise is so saturated with the cadences and the themes of Scripture that whenever somebody has a conversation with you, they feel like that reminisces of a passage in Scripture, but they can't even put their finger on it. We've become that attentive to God's Word And it's become the fabric in which we now see the rest of the world and engage in our relationships. You see, in so much of our world, the main categories are I, me, and mine, with all of that at the center of our world. And that's quite narrow-minded. But what Scripture does is it expands our horizons to now see God at the center of His world. We become broader in our understanding of how things are engaged and how the world came to be. So to slow down and be attentive to God's word, we need to let every attempt of praise be shaped by scripture. Let every attempt of praise be shaped by scripture. How? Well, if you're struggling to praise God for any length of time, if you're anything like me, okay, then get your nose in the book and begin to ask the question, okay, what can I praise God for here that I see? And how am I seeing him do this around me? What can I see that God is doing here in this passage that I can praise him for today? And how do I see him doing this around me? Maybe you can take a note from the psalmist as he's meditating on Psalm, or Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and writes his psalm of praise. You can also write a psalm of praise for what you see God doing. What you love most, you'll praise most. So let every attempt of praise be shaped by scripture. Because when we do this, we're gonna find that we see more of who God is and more of what he's doing in our world than we could ever see with just our naked eye. That's the kind of lens that scripture engages us with, to broaden our horizons, to see more of what's going behind the scenes than we can with our naked eye. Now, after all that, we can be attentive to God's world and we can be attentive to God's word, but we can't stop there. We need to also, and the first to help us, and with this third one, be attentive to God's presence and praise Him in it all. Be attentive to God's presence and praise Him in it all. When you look at this litany of praise that the psalmist presents, we find a God who is wholly other. He's huge. He's magnificent. He's righteous. He's good in all of His ways. He's high above us. 
And yet simultaneously, he's behind us, he's before us, he's below us, he's around us, he's ever-present with us. And he longs to intimately care for each and every one of us. The psalmist becomes convinced of this. As he sees God's intimate work on a cosmic scale, he comes to trust in God's work in his life intimately and personally. Look at how the psalm ends. It ends with this, God, I will sing to you no matter what comes as long as I've got breath. May my meditation, even the words I'm not saying, but I'm thinking, may they be pleasing to you. Because even there, that's where you dwell. And so God, protect your good world from those, and he uses the language of sinners and the wicked because the sinners and the wicked throw off God's design and seek to bring destructive habits and destruction to God's good world. And he's raptured with the way God's designed things in God's rightful place that he says, protect your world. It's too good to be spoiled. God, please do this. I want to be a part of that. That's quite a magnificent transformation in praise. And the arc of this prayer in Psalm 104 teaches us a good pattern in our own prayers. There's so much in our life that's competing for our praise, for our attention, for our love. And the psalmist, he's pointing us to now praise a particular person in a particular way. And when we learn to praise who the psalmist prays and the way in which he praises, then we'll also learn to petition in the same way the psalmist does. Because what we love most, we praise most. And what we praise most, we come to long for most. I want more of that. I want more of you in my life. This is really where we see the Lord's Prayer also taking shape. And being enraptured with who God is, it's thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not mine, the way you've designed it. I want more of that. I want you to uphold that. I want you to bring that here. And he becomes enraptured because God is that good and that wise that everything else is bringing destruction. So how do we seek to be attentive to God's presence? First, we let every request start with praise. Let every request start with praise. How do we do that? We... We first notice the character quality of who God is that we find in Scripture and we base our petition on that. The best of prayers that have lasted the test of time take this model. And I've even given you a template up on the screen. God, because you are blank, we ask blank. God, because you are steadfast in your love, may you give me steadfast love for this coworker who's driving me nuts. God, because you're faithful to your promises, God, I ask that you would help me in my marriage. We're really struggling, but I want to be faithful to my promises. God, because you are just and you hear the voice of the voiceless, God, I ask that you would give us a tenderness towards the voiceless and you would help us have courage to stand up for those that no one else will. These are how our prayers are to be orchestrated, praising God for who he is. And out of that praise, now we have a lens in which petition flows a greater confidence that God will act in accordance with his character. What if our petitions were shaped by our praise? How different would that be? Well, what we love most, we praise most, and what we praise most, we will petition for more of. And so be attentive to God's world. Be attentive to God's world and praise him for it. How do we do this? We first... We let every pleasure end in praise. 
And then we also come attentive to God's world or God's word and we praise him with it by letting every attempt of praise being shaped by scripture. And lastly, we be attentive to God's presence and we praise him in it all. Letting every request start with praise. This takes full attention, not continuous partial attention, full attention in our lives, not some attention in this sphere of influence and some attention in this sphere of influence, but full attention in our whole seamless life. And this will give you a greater depth to your delight, such that when we see the sunrise coming down on the west bottoms, you see more than just the beauty of the mixture of colors, but now you see God's care in the sunset. Because you see a God who raises the sun and sets the sun frequently and faithfully every day. It begins to awaken senses in you that you thought were dead. When you feel the breeze come across your balcony, you not only hear the breeze, but you hear God rejoicing over his good work well done in his world. And yet, there is one work that supersedes them all. One work that makes every bit of creation pale in comparison. One work that makes the sunset on the cloudless day on the beach seem like another day in the office. One work that every jot and tittle in scripture screams. One work that shocks our sensibilities and forces our attention. You see, God didn't just look at the earth and it trembled. He didn't just touch down on smoking mountains, but he entered the very fabric of his universe and took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he engaged sinners and the wicked in a way that even astounded the angels. Because you and I know that our meditations are anything but pleasing 99.9% of the time. Where God came lived the perfect life, went to the cross and paid our penalty. And so, therefore, could be both the just and the justifier of the sinful and the wicked who have destroyed his good world, you and I. And on the cross, he put death to death. And then on the third day, he rose again, the author of life, to breathe new life into his creation, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and has promised to come again and to make all wrongs right and to finally reestablish his good world where he will wipe every tear from our eyes and pain will be no more and sin will be no more and our rebellion will be no more and we'll trust God as we were meant to. That's how I can sing and I can respond with every breath of my being until I have no breath. And I can join a song that has been sung before I joined the choir. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And he is to be our ultimate delight and our ultimate love. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with so much on our agendas for this week and maybe even for this day. We give you our full attention now. We are astounded at your good world. We are first creatures and we thank you for breathing life into us, for knitting us together in our mother's womb, as the psalmist says in another prayer. And God, we also thank you that even though we are creatures who disregarded our creator, you did not disregard us. 
and yet you chased after us even into the depths of your own world. And you died for us to so pay our penalty of treason against our creator. And you redeemed us for all who call upon the name of Jesus. And so God, we do gather this morning and we say thank you. Thank you for everything. For only you are the author of every good and perfect gift. May we never forget that. May we never become presumptuous. May we never become so arrogant and bold as to say what gives, God, because you have given. May we receive. And so out of the overflow of gratitude, now respond in obedience and in trust to your word. You are good and your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name, amen.